Lori Erickson believes her Norwegian ancestors deserve a lot of credit for the life she enjoys today. Life turns on a dime sometimes, and the effects ripple through generations of one person's decision. Coming up, she explains how there might be a place for Norse mythology in your DNA. Their cities can be futuristic and efficient, and their small towns cute and charming. You'll be impressed by how they live in the Netherlands. My favorite tiny town. It's one of these ones you see as you go through on the train, and it's these little houses, and you see a church steeple standing up, and you think, how do all these itty-bitty towns have these amazing steeples? I would rather go to Delft. Or try a homestay in Central America for an eye-opening welcome to another world. Penny Reed tells us how her first trip to Nicaragua was a game-changer that keeps taking her back. Giving our hearts, giving our presence, giving our attention... We're building bridges in the hour ahead. Come along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. How can visiting a town in another country really change your view of the world? Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we hear how a study trip to rural Nicaragua did just that for one Seattle traveler. And tour guides recommend their favorite places to enjoy picturesque small towns and powerhouse cities in the Netherlands. Let's start the hour with the discoveries that a woman from Iowa made as she got acquainted with the legends of Norse mythology and her own ancestors in the Old World. From the Lord of the Rings to Game of Thrones, Norse mythology and Viking legends have woven their way into our modern culture. Lately, travel writer Lori Erickson has found herself drawn to explore her own Nordic roots. Her research has revealed her ancestors' spiritual and cultural legacy. Lori writes about this in her book, and it's called The Soul of the Family Tree, Ancestors, Stories, and the Spirits We Inherit. Her book also explores Viking history, modern Norway, and the ways in which Norse mythology continues to live on today. Lori joins us from Iowa City to talk about the power and perils of myth and what the Norse have to teach us today. Lori, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, Rick. So what the Norse can teach us today. First of all, you grew up as you write, in a passionately Norwegian-American Iowa town. Uh, What was that like, and and then how did that contribute to you delving into Norse mythology? I think there are really two sides to the Norwegian-American story. One is the immigrant side, uh, which was very much celebrated in the small town I grew up in of Decorah, Iowa, which is home to Vesterheim, uh, the National Norwegian-American Museum. And then there's the the larger Norse mythology story side that is celebrated by the larger culture in movies and video games and all sorts of fantasy books and things like that. So it was really interesting as I was doing my research to learn more about the origins of those stories and how they really began with in a very remote part of the world, and it's it's fascinating how they have spread then all over the world, really. You know, you wrote in your book about reverse genealogy, and we always think, oh, we're in the new land, we'll go to the old country to learn about it. But in some ways, the people who immigrated and have settled in the new country are sort of like determined to honor and, and keep alive their traditions. And in some ways, people from the old country can go to the new country to learn about their distant past. Is Is there anything to that? I think especially communities, towns, neighborhoods that have a very strong ethnic connection often preserve the culture of the place at the time people immigrated. And so I think that's that's certainly true in the upper Midwest that has a lot of Swedish American towns, Norwegian American towns, German American towns, Czech, etc. That the culture they celebrate is the ones that in a sense it's frozen in time. 
And so when people come from contemporary Europe to see these places, they, in a sense, are, are seeing their heritage as it was 100 or more years ago. Hmm. So you can get more lutefisk in Iowa than you can in Bergen. <laughs> <laughs> that might well be true, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. Now, with the, yeah. the popularity of the Lord of Rings, uh, Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones, North mythology and Viking legends have actually woven their way into our modern culture. As And, and you're, a, you're a deacon in the Episcopalian Church. Do you see any value in that? Is this, is this a good thing or a bad thing, or how does it impact our culture? Oh, absolutely. I'm a huge believer in the power of stories and the power of myth. You know, we we tend to think of myth in a negative way. We say, oh, it's just a myth, you know, and a, that it's false. But I think the deeper, larger meaning of myth has to do with truths that are contained within stories that on the surface aren't true, but there's a deeper message that's carried in them. And so Norse mythology, I think a lot of people have at least a passing uh, introduction to it from childhood, perhaps. But I think that it's fascinating the ways in which it has spread throughout the culture. And and if I could just say a word for one of my favorite characters that I discovered in the course of my research, Snorri Sturluson. And I love that name, Snorri, by the way. He was a 13th century Icelandic chieftain who was a real piece of work. Uh, He was a wheeler dealer and he married off all of his children in unhappy marriages because he wanted to increase his own power. He, He ended up being killed by two of his former sons-in-law. But he also had a love for the old stories that were in danger of being lost because this was during the time, the first couple of centuries after Scandinavia became Christian. And so he made it his mission to write them down in a book called The Prose Edda. And it was that book that was inspiration for J.R.R. Tolkien when he was writing his stories in Lord of the Rings and The ah, Hobbit. I didn't know there was a Tolkien connection because when I was in Reykjavik, yes. I saw the statue of Snorri uh-huh. and I thought he was really cool. Mm-hmm. He he was instrumental mm-hmm. in keeping those pre-Christian sagas alive, yes. right? That's right. the compost pile from where the Icelandic culture came, grew out of. I mean, it's yep. amazing. Yep. And then mm-hmm. they, they honor that even with a statue in the capital city. Mm-hmm. And then Tolkien became so fascinated by Icelandic culture in particular. He he taught himself Icelandic as a hmm. teenager, and then he made it sort of a personal mission to introduce people to the, the wonders and the power of these stories. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, from Tolkien, he was influential on all sorts of other writers from more recently the Harry Potter series or yes. Stephen King or Douglas Adams or much of our fantasy literature and popular culture can be traced back, really, to Snorri Sturluson. (laughs) Lori Erickson is helping us explore the influence of Norse mythology in our lives today on Travel with Rick Steves. She's written The Soul of the Family Tree, Ancestors, Stories, and the Spirits We Inherit. Lori's an Episcopal deacon, and the focus of her travel writing is often on the spiritual elements of the world around us. She posts practical advice for soulful journeys at spiritualtravels.info. You talk in your book about your spiritual guides, Leif Erikson, the explorer, and Gudrid, the far traveler. We'll talk maybe about Leif Erikson in a minute, but I'm interested to hear how this, apparently she was the, the Viking woman who gave birth to the first child of European descent in North America. Tell us about Gudrid and, and why she became your spiritual guide. So I ran across Gudrid by accident. I was traveling in the remote part of Iceland, and I came across a beautiful statue of a a very strong and beautiful woman who was looking out at the sea, and she had a small child perched on her shoulder. 
And there was a sign there that talked about her as Gudrid the Far Traveler, who was almost certainly the most well-traveled woman of the Middle Ages. She traveled to the New World, gave birth to the first child of European descent, as you said, in the New World. And then uh, later in her life, she walked on pilgrimage to Rome. So she straddled the pagan world, the Christian world. She was renowned for her goodness and wisdom. And she actually plays a larger role in the Icelandic sagas than does Leif Erikson, who's the ancestor that I thought I was going to start hmm. researching. And instead, I became even more fascinated by Gudrid the Far Traveler. Gudrid the Far Traveler. And you mentioned she straddled the pagan world and the Christian world. I'm curious about Norse paganism. You wrote about meeting a modern-day Norse pagan in uh, Minneapolis. What is a pagan, and uh, mm -hmm. what can you learn from talking to a Norse pagan today? I thought it was fascinating to see the ways in which people are reinterpreting the old traditions in a contemporary fashion. And so there's a woman named Kari Toring. She's deeply steeped in Scandinavian ritual and tradition and stories, and she has developed a spiritual practice that's based on these old ways. But she also acknowledges her Christian roots and uh, the value that they have had for many generations of people. So anyway, I traveled with Kari Touring. We went to a Viking festival together in western Minnesota. I spent a lot of time talking to her about these uh, stories and this idea of spiritual DNA. So she was tremendously helpful in the research for my book. You also write, uh, Laurie, about there's a dark side to Norse mythology. Tell us a little bit about the, what you might stumble into North, Norse mythology that, that might be threatening and dangerous. Well, the, the prime example of that is the Nazi myth about the Aryan race, which the tiny, tiny germ of truth was that they took some of these old stories and Hitler made it into a twisted ideology that he made up and that was tremendously destructive, of course. Mm -hmm. Everyone realizes that in so many ways. Unfortunately, there are people today who appropriate parts of the Norse uh, mythology for their own purposes, white supremacist mm. groups and other groups like that. And it is a problem in the sense that the groups that are looking to Norse mythology for inspiration don't want to have anything to do with them. Let me give you an example of that. At the Olympics, I think maybe about oh a dozen or so years ago, the Norwegian ski team had sweaters made that had a Norse rune on them, the rune for the warrior tier. And there was a big uproar because it turns out that is a symbol that has been sometimes used by some of these separatist groups. And they had to do away with, you know, they had to stop wearing their sweaters. Ah. And it was such a terrible example of the, the Norwegians who suffered terribly under the Nazis once again had to deal with the consequences of people, you know, taking part of their story mm -hmm. and making it and twisting it. I guess that's a, a risk and a danger of, of uh, people with bad intentions appropriating somebody's uh, yeah. political beliefs yeah. or religious beliefs that any religion mm -hmm. or political group needs to be mindful of. We've been talking with Lori Erickson today on Travel with Rick Steves as we explore what Norse mythology has to tell us today. Lori explores her own Norwegian-American ancestry in her book, The Soul of the Family Tree, Ancestors, Stories, and the Spirits We Inherit. There's more on her website. It's laurieerickson.net. You know, Laurie, you have a website called uh, Spiritual Travels, and it features holy sites around the world. I've had some beautiful emotional experiences at places in Norway that have felt spiritual to me. Can you just wrap our discussion up with a spot in Norway that, that had a big impact on you as you traveled hoping to connect 
with your ancestors. I would talk about being on the dock in Bergen. My ancestors, the pair that I had traced uh, primarily in, in my book, among my many Norwegian ancestors, I just had to choose one couple to trace their history. And they had left from Bergen to come to America, and they, they never went back. And as I was standing on the dock, I was looking at my two sons. And I was looking at my one son in particular looks Norwegian. He's tall and blonde. And I saw how well he blended in there. And I thought, you know, if those two people had made a different decision, if they had decided to stay rather than go, you know, he would be here speaking mm. Norwegian and, you know, you all of those hypotheticals. But mm. you realize just how life turns on a dime sometimes mm. and mm. and the effects ripple through generations of of one person's decision. And so standing on the dock in Bergen really brought that home mm. to me. I love how, you know, having an interest in your genealogy and your ancestry and good travels seem to mix so beautifully. Laurie Erickson, thank you so much for joining us and best wishes with your book, The Soul of the Family Tree. Thank you for having me, Rick. Laurie Erickson tells us more about Odin and his love of wisdom in an extra to this week's show. You can listen to it at ricksteves.com slash radio. In just a bit, we'll hear how traveling to Nicaragua to learn Spanish can transform your life and your view of the world. But first, we look at some of the fun places you can visit in the Netherlands, where powerhouse cities and scenic small towns both offer their own take on the art of good living. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Most visitors to the Netherlands focus on the top-tier attractions in Amsterdam. But it's well worth your time to venture out into the working city of Rotterdam and the charm of the country's many scenic and smaller historic towns. Most are less than an hour's train ride from wherever you base yourself in the Netherlands. Our guide friends, Rolinka Blooming and Tim Tendick, are here to inspire us to go a bit further afield in the Netherlands. Tim and Rolinka, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Hello. So uh, both of you have been taking groups around the Netherlands for ages, and you can go big cities, you can go small towns, and you can go little villages. Rolinka, if you're taking a group and, and their uh, main target is Amsterdam, and you want to get them out into the countryside, first of all, you need to appreciate how the city is built on canals and reclaimed land and, and its mastery of, of the water. Talk a little bit about the heritage of the Netherlands and the sea. Well, first maybe think about why is it called Holland and the Netherlands? Because Netherlands means low lands. So the remarkable thing, I think, about the Netherlands is its location. Millions of people live below sea level in so-called polderland which mm-hmm. is reclaimed land from the sea, man-made. And as you're traveling around, you would see windmills. And when I see windmills, I think Archimedes screws, and that means the blade turns the screw so the water is pumped from lower to higher over dikes and eventually out to sea. Mm-hmm. That's a traditional way of reclaiming the, the land. Uh, you'll also see modern uh, structures designed to protect the Netherlands from the sea. I was in uh, Rotterdam recently. They have this incredible storm surge barrier. Can you explain how Rotterdam is being protected from rising sea levels? There is a storm surge barrier that Uh was uh, designed after a large flooding in 1953. And they decided to make the country safer. But you don't want to build simply dams and dikes because the best example is Rotterdam. So one of the largest harbors in the world, you want to have that harbor being accessible for shipping 24 hours a day, you can't build a dike or a dam there. So there they decided, the Dutch government, because we take 
climate change serious and we know that we need to invest in uh, the future, they install the huge storm surge barrier that's, that was actually just recently uh, used after not being used for 11 years. Really? And they had to, they spent a lot of money on this. And if you use it just once, it's going to pay for itself because you will avoid a catastrophe like we had in, in New Orleans. Uh, but this storm surge barrier, I've seen it. It's as big as two Eiffel Towers on their side on wheels that can roll together and stop the sea from coming in when there's a perfect storm of, of uh, high tide and wind and, and whatever would bring a higher sea. You can close it off and protect millions of people. Correct. That's it. Wow. Yeah. And do the Dutch people who live below sea level feel safe behind yeah. their dikes? Yeah, we we don't worry. Even if a lot of people live 15, 20, or even more than 20 feet below sea level, and we don't worry because um, we have faith in the water management of the Dutch government. We know billions of euro are invested in this. Uh, the expertise is there. The, the The experience is there. People, it's a Dutch way that's, of living. That's, that's how we live. That's how you live. Now, Tim, when you go to uh, the Netherlands, you can you can see all the charming towns and the, in the Netherlands. You can get anywhere by train in less than an hour. It seems like the trains are so good. So if you want to go there, the answer is yes. It's easy. Just hop on the train. Going to Rotterdam, that would be your look at contemporary Dutch industrial might. It seems like. What do you find when you go to the, the great city of Rotterdam, which was pretty much destroyed in World War II? That's it. That's that's why Rotterdam always feels like a little bit of a, a separate, a little distinct city from the rest because so much of it was, was destroyed in the war. And they came back and they really faced a challenge that a lot of Europe faced of how to build something new and what would its identity be. And Rotterdam, to me, as I walked through, the thing that really stood out was the amount of art. Just art is so alive in that city. There's statues everywhere, a lot of great little galleries, and they just have a very, they're very mindful about the appearance of the city and how they combined that. I was just there recently. Even the train station is a work of art. It's just, it's a happy, modern, efficient train station. It made me want to go to work. I mean, I wanted to commute. It was the strangest thing. And I, but <laughs> Only instead, the Dutch I, can make you want to commute. <laughs> I know, and it was really something. And I got on a rental bike, and there was modern art dotted all over the town along the generally pedestrian and bike-friendly interior. Even Rotterdam, which is the epitome of industrialization, was primarily pedestrian and bike-friendly, and you come to some of these little communities with modern, just crazy architecture. The market hall is a condominium that arcs over the market, and uh, describe what it's like. I mean, I've never seen anything anywhere like it. It is. It's definitely a different take on the traditional European market. You can go in there, and, and it looks very modern, all this beautiful glass, but then you do still find the kind of small shopkeeper who can tell you exactly where this was grown and, sh- and sell you the really artisanal products with amazing flavor. And then you look up above and you see people's condominiums, and they're looking literally down on the market. They're living over it. And then across the square, there's houses built on, like on posts where they're cubes on their corners somehow. Completely wacky. Yeah. So there's that playfulness. But also, don't they say, uh, they have a joke where in, in Rotterdam, the shirts are sold with the sleeves already rolled up. So that, <laughs> yeah, I hadn't I mean, heard that. <laughs> yeah, the, the, they say the money is made in Rotterdam. It's divvied up in The Hague, that's the capital, mm. and spent in Amsterdam. Have you heard that, Rolinka? I heard that, yes. Don't we say the money is made in the Netherlands in Rotterdam, they talk about it in The Hague, and they spend it in Amsterdam. Okay, they talk about it. I have the earlier uh, version when government was more um, uh, effective. They divvy it up. They divide it, but now they talk about it, and then they spend it in Amsterdam. <laughs> Thank you for updating me on that little little quote. And I also think that Rotterdam is called the new Dubai. Ah, 
because of the modern architecture and all the crazy oh, yeah. things they are building. Do you like walking around Rotterdam? No, not really. It's too that, big for you? Or? Yeah, it's too big. It's too modern. I, I like, you like the cute. Like the angel, yeah. Okay, so if you want the cute in a little urban setting and a smaller scale, where would you go? I would rather go to Delft. Delft? It's not really small. It's a city of about 100,000 inhabitants, but it feels small. It's mm-hmm. a very dynamic, very young city. It's a mm-hmm. city of uh, the university. The technical university is there. Mm. So it's all the students that makes the city very lively and friendly. It's not very touristy. And it's only 15 minutes away from Rotterdam. Yeah. So you could live. You could roll up your sleeves and make the money <laughs> in Rotterdam. And then you could spend your life in this charming Delft. I love being there on market day. Describe, the mar- the, first of all, the market square. Market square is surrounded by old townhouses. So it's the atmosphere of the 17th century with the city hall and the church. And the church is like a rocket of bricks. It just goes straight up. It's amazing structure. Yeah. And then on market days... The whole square is filled with, with stalls with all the specialties. So you the, cheese, the flower shops. You got your flowers, you got your herring, and it's not for the, just for the tourist. It's real. Um, I, think, I think it's not for the tourist. It, right. it's, it is for the locals. I just and those tourists that, that are, happen to be there, they enjoy it. And, of course, we know Delft because of Delftware. Mm-hmm. And if you're curious about Delftware, what can you do? There are several places where they, where they still make original Delftware. So you want to you want to watch out. You don't want to just buy something in one of the shops because most of it will not be authentic. Uh, so there's three different places where they still make original Delftware. Is there's the Royal Dutch Delftware manufacturer? The that's the the big one. The bigger one. There and mm-hmm. I'm very impressed by the the presentation. You get to see the factory. You get to see the painting. You get to see them fire the. It's just a beautiful thing. And of course, you can buy some Delft right there. Our guides to the towns of the Netherlands right now on Travel with Rick Steves are Rolinka Blooming and Tim Tendik. Rolinka grew up exploring her home base in the Netherlands on family bicycle outings. She now operates an off-the-grid shepherd cottage echo guesthouse in the French Pyrenees. Tim Tendik is Dutch-American, and he teaches English in the San Francisco Bay Area and guides tours all over Europe. We have links to Relinka's website and to Tim's travel blog in this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. By the way, today's conversation was recorded before the pandemic. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Jennifer's calling from Rockwall in Texas. Jennifer, thanks for your call. Oh, thanks for taking it. Yeah, have you been in Delft? I have been in Delft a couple of times, and the last time I went... Um, Our family of five, we were all living in Portugal at the time, and I was able to take my oldest daughter to the Netherlands for her 16th birthday. Oh. And that was a lot of fun. I bet. And you stayed in Delft. What are your memories of Delft? We actually stayed in Harlem. We chose to stay out in the countryside. I had been in Amsterdam before, so I thought it'd be nice to have a different experience. So we stayed in Harlem, got to go to Delft, and took the train there. The city square is as majestic as the church is. It's also very quaint. In both Harlem and Delft, I would say. They're they're sort of sister cities that way. Absolutely. In Delft, we got to enjoy a concert. We even had a wedding party come out of the church. That was really fun. And then in Harlem, the city square is just, you know, there's Mm. everyone's there outside. We Mm. even got to eat fajitas. Which was fun. Fajitas in Harlem. Texas. I know. Well, it's sort of the New Netherlands. You know, there's a, 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 
It's a dynamic country, and it's got a, a classic uh, shell with which to live in. And uh, hey, uh, Jennifer, if you were going to go back again, or you have some friends that were going back, would you recommend they sleep in Harlem or in Delft? Which one would you make for a home base? I'd say either. I think Harlem, it's a great bike ride from Harlem to Amsterdam. That's hmm. one of the reasons we chose it. We, you know, a lot of the hotels rent bikes. It makes it very easy for travelers. Right. But either would be extremely charming. We stayed at a great hotel and, um, I, gosh, I, I wouldn't even know. I'd say go with either. You're going to be yeah. happy either way. Over the years, <laughs> I've been I've been wrestling in my mind between the two. Uh, Delft, I think, is a little nicer town in some ways, but Harlem is so handy to Amsterdam. And if you're going to yes. travel to Amsterdam, yes. I frankly, I'd rather sleep in, in Harlem and side trip into Amsterdam. You, you hop on the right. train, trains go every 10, 15 right. minutes, so... You're right there at the at the Welcome to Amsterdam placemat as you step off the train. So uh, thank, right. thanks for your call. Oh, thank you. Happy travels. Tim, when you think about um, Jennifer's uh, comments and uh, your experiences in Harlem, what comes to mind about Harlem for you? Harlem just, it does feel like such a, it feels like home pretty quick after you get there. Mm-hmm. And I know sometimes people are nervous about going around a city, especially if they don't speak the native language and don't necessarily know all the rules and things of traffic and these things. And partially that's easy in that area because everybody speaks English. And then biking around in that area too is just such a pleasure because the Dutch system of separated bicycle lanes is so safe. You're never in traffic. Um, you're always on this on the separate protected lane. People don't even wear helmets. And everyone who's driving also rides a bike a lot. So they're very mindful of the existence of and, and, the, and the realities of bicycle riding. So it's a very safe place to ride. It's a safe place to ride, but it's not a very safe place to walk if you're a tourist oblivious to the silent bikes that come whizzing by. Uh, Many times I've nearly walked right into a bike, and if a little chirpy little uh, handlebar bell ringer can sound angry, I've heard those. This is true. When when I started learning Dutch, usually if you learn a language, the first thing they teach you is, hello, good morning, that sort of thing. The first thing my Dutch textbook taught me was, kijk uit, je stot op fietspad, which is, look out, you're on the bike path. (laughs) Whoever wrote that book said the number one thing we want people to learn is to get off the bike path. Say it again. Kijk uit, je staat op het fietspad. <laughs> I would think that's probably one of the key survival phrases. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the Netherlands with Rolinka Blooming and Tim Tendick. When we're in Harlem, it's amazing. I mean, it's a charming little town, but you, you step into the church and you have the mightiest pipe organ I've ever seen. Mozart played it. The whole wall is just a, it's a tower of pipes. And, and that's sort of the traditional culture that's going on. You've got, uh, of all the Dutch masters, uh, Franz Hals is one of the greatest, and there's a museum dedicated to him. He's a hometown boy. Uh, Corrie ten Boom. If you're frustrated with Anne Frank's house because it's so darn crowded, you have the uh, equivalent in Harlem, in a certain way, Corrie ten Boom. And this is made famous from the book in the movie The Hiding Place. And this is a tour that the family there actually welcomes in 20 people at a time, four or five times a day, I think. And you actually hear the story of how they they hid their neighbors uh, from the Nazis. And I just found that was a powerful little extra visit while you're in Harlem. Tim, we've been talking about mighty cities and cute small towns. What's a village? There's a lot of villages, and I'm sure you've stumbled onto some. Is there one you'd like to share that would be worth knowing about? My favorite tiny town, it's one of these ones you see as you go through on the train, and it's these little houses, and you see a church steeple standing up, and you think, how do all these itty-bitty towns have these amazing steeples? But I went to uh, Holst is one, right down by the by the border there with uh, with Belgium, and it's a really remarkable town. It's very small, doesn't have too many things people would see, but even there it manages to have a lot of medieval 
ruins and, and replicas. It has uh, namely a big fortress in the middle with its moat still there from the uh-huh. 1500s. But they have the Basilica of St. Rilebroard. St. who? St. Willebroard. There's, Willebroard. There, there's too many R's in that name. I don't know how they put them in there. And this is Holst, H-U-L-S-T, yeah, Holst. near the border of Belgium. Mm-hmm. It means holly from the shape of the uh, of the fortress in there. Yeah. Okay. But that, that basilica is really remarkable to me as just really a exemplar of, of Dutch tolerance and history because they, for a while after Napoleon, they basically kind of built a little wall inside there and made it a, a simultan kerk which is like a simultaneous church. So they actually shared it with Catholics and Protestants. They said, we both worship in the same place. Now, isn't that interesting? So they've mm-hmm. had this, they've gone with the European tumult when it comes to, you know, Catholics and Protestants fighting mm-hmm. each other, but they've sort of been accommodating. And mm-hmm. I know when you're in Amsterdam, you find a lot of hidden churches, and anybody would know there's a church there, but they just keep a low profile and then they let it be. Yeah, as long as you behave yourself, we'll let you be there. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, quote, victimless crimes that are accepted today as, as long as people use discretion in the mm-hmm. Netherlands. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Relinka Blooming and Tim Tendick about the Netherlands. Relinka, a lot of people just think flowers when they go to the Netherlands. I believe your last name, Blooming, means flowers. Yes. Uh, did your ancestors sell flowers, or how, how would somebody be called Relinka Flowers? I have no idea. <laughs> Must Don't have know. Been. Maybe your dad started one of these uh, Kuchenhof markets I'll or something. I'll ask Papa. <laughs> All right. But there's uh, two things high on people's list. The Alsmere Flower Auction near mm-hmm. the airport at Schiphol and Kuchenhof, which every spring has a magnificent tulip festival. Can yeah. you describe the, the Alsmere Flower Auction and then Kuchenhof? Mm-hmm. So the flower auction is in one of the largest industrial buildings in the world. It's just enormous. And there's a lot of activity, but you have to be very early in the morning. And then you can walk around there and enjoy the fast movement of the flowers and the plants and that go into the auction hall. Mm-hmm. Because but, the whole um, idea, it's got to be fast because mm-hmm. they got to get the flowers to market today. And you see literally train loads of flowers coming by that people are bidding on. Yeah, like millions of flowers go yeah. through it in the morning. But you know what? It's a bit, um, it's not anymore as it was before because the people that work at the flower auction, uh, it's more and more they can bid through the internet as well. Oh, this is not what it used to be because it used to be a really high energy, amazing spectacle. They had this strange kind of bidding to me where they would go from the top price down instead of everybody upping each other. The price would come down, and the first person to say yes would get it. Yeah, right? I think it's called the Dutch clock. The Dutch clock. Yeah. Okay. So, how about Kuchenhof? How's that doing? Kuchenhof is fantastic, uh, but it's only eight weeks a year, of course. Mm-hmm. So it's only in the springtime. I think it's one of the largest spring flower uh, gardens in Europe. Mm. Uh, millions of flowers, beautiful patterns, beautiful colors, the smell. Lovely to go, but it's a yeah. giant orchard of. Uh, it's just like a. It's a wonderland. I'm not even that into flowers, and I've been to Kuchenhof several times. If I'm ever in the Netherlands in the spring during Kuchenhof, I make a point to go there and cost them a reasonable fee to get in there, ten euros or something like that. And then you've got free run of this vast park and so lovingly landscaped and filled with explosions of colors, along with plenty of Dutch cliches. You've got your little syrup waffles and your wooden shoes and your windmills that you can check out. And the main thing for me is just the magnificent flowers when they're in season. Absolutely, yeah. It's a highlight. Kuchenhof. Relinka Blooming, Tim Tendick, thanks so much for a better understanding of the amazing Netherlands. Thank you, Rick. My pleasure. Next, we hear how a trip to a humble town in Central America can change your life. Penny Reed's trip to Nicaragua was a way to immerse herself in learning Spanish. 
but it also showed her how practicing peace and creating goodness for the people around you can be a lot more rewarding than just trying to accumulate material wealth. Penny turned her notes from learning new words and concepts in Spanish into a memoir of the places and people that still tug at her heart from Nicaragua. She tells us about it next on Travel with Rick Steves. She's the kind of person who always identified with what you might call the underdogs. So Seattleite Penny Reed decided to try an immersion course in Spanish. It could help her better identify with the second language in the United States and what many students in her school system speak at home. So Penny took time off from work as a school psychologist to join a church group on what was billed as a transformational travel trip to Nicaragua. It included homestays and experiences in humble rural communities and small cities. Her group saw firsthand what people there really need to help alleviate one of the highest poverty rates in the Americas. It turned out ecological tourism may be a part of the equation. Penny writes about her experiences in Central America in her self-published book called Bridging, Languages, Cultures, and My Life. Penny, thanks for joining us. It's wonderful to be here, Rick. Thank you. Man, paging through your book, it just reminds me what a powerful opportunity travel is. And it also reminds me how it can complicate your life. And it sounds like your visit to Nicaragua complicated your life. Definitely. And I would also say that it expanded it manyfold. You know, when I was contacted by your producer and asked to come in, I said, this story is not about me. I would be happy to come in, but I really want to have someone here from Nicaragua, as we will later on. And just the learning was expansive. Um, What took me there initially, of course, was my connections at church, but also that I felt almost desperate to learn Spanish. I was working with children with families in the school district. About 30 percent of them heard Spanish spoken fluently in their home. I recognized that this was an opportunity for me to, as a middle-aged person, to be immersed in culture and Spanish again. Why Nicaragua as opposed to other South American options? Well, it was an invitation at church. Someone had given a gift to our church saying, I want this to go to the people of Nicaragua, following up on a a feeding program that we had had prior. Okay, so that's the, the reason you went there instead of Guatemala or something like that. I found that every one of these countries has unique struggles, but fundamentally trying to get people dignity and trying to live in challenges that we can hardly imagine. Now, let's talk just a moment about traveling in Nicaragua. There's the capital city, Managua, there's the interior, and then there's the Pacific Coast and the Caribbean Coast, right? Correct. Describe each of those just briefly. Well, I visited all four of those, spent most of the time in the mountains of Matagalpa, so that would be the central area that you describe, about two hours driving north of Managua. Uh, Managua is a huge city in itself, lots of action, lots of activity, progressive, uh, lots going on there. And then the West Coast, I've been to Lyon, which Mm -hmm. is where a a huge university is. Lots of art, history, um, lots to learn there. And then the East Coast, so the Caribbean side, is blue fields and corn islands. And And that's got a a black heritage, a a slave heritage. A lot of African um, influence there. Yeah, Yeah. and uh, quite a, a, a strong, a rich culture there that's different than what you'd find in Managua. Can you imagine the variety of, you know, the diversity in that country is really spectacular. One of the things I love about visiting there. Now, in my experience in in Latin America, you have um, the modern capital cities. And these days, to be honest, there's a lot of gang violence. 
There's a lot of desperation. Uh, I'm not that comfortable in Guatemala City or Managua, but I am comfortable in the colonial capitals. Uh, In Nicaragua, you'd go to Granada. In uh, Guatemala, a lot of people go to Antigua. What's your take on Managua versus Granada? Oh, interesting. You are a historian, Rick. Uh I I recognize that. And I am a psychologist. Okay. (laughs) And so I come at this not remembering or not necessarily having all of the details down about the history. Of course, Mm -hmm. I've heard it. I've learned it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it does add to the the wealth in my experience. Mm -hmm. But what I go for is the people and getting to know them. And, uh, you know, I've been surprised in Nicaragua time after time that they welcome me. Even the history that they have with the United States, the um, Iran-Contra affair way back when, mm-hmm. they basically opened their arms and were willing to forgive me as a representative of the United States in a second. Well, forgive meaning looking at the negative impact we've had on them as we've favored and supported the corrupt governments and the giant corporations that turned them into a banana republic. Beautifully said. Yeah. So, yeah. But I, I'm with you there, Penny, because... I never knew mi casa, su casa, what that meant. My house is your house <laughs> mm-hmm. until I went to Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. I, I, was so, I was so inspired by not just the friendliness, but the friendliness in the midst of such difficulties. You know, I would agree with that. And I would also say that they are um, striving entrepreneurs. And especially now, it's been so interesting to me not having been there since um, early 2018 seeing what Ernesto, my friend, has done in order to address lack of tourism, which was really a huge uh, business for him and his company to change it up and to know what the people needed. Yeah. Now, I can hardly wait to talk to your friend Ernesto, but before we get to Ernesto, Penny, you were talking about meeting the people, and my most vivid experiences were in homestays. Mm. And when you've traveled there, you've taken advantage of homestays, not staying in a business hotel in Managua, but in somebody's home. Yeah. The first time that I went, we were there for 10 nights. Yeah. And the first night I was assigned to share a house with a young woman who was traveling in our group. She was 13. And we went into the home and we were assigned to the the only twin bed that was in the home. And I remember looking with Anna and saying, how are we going to do this? Yeah. <laughs> and we decided, you know, that I would, my head would be at this end and her head would be at this end and we would get a night's sleep. And I'll never forget that night of being awake most of the night yeah. and hearing most of the sounds. And, and hearing the animals. Yeah. And being grateful. I mean, this was in the city and there were yeah. still roosters waking me up. You had such vivid moments that came across in your journal, in your book, Bridging. And in this book, you talked about staying in Marlena's house and how you wanted to give some tangible gift, but you were instructed by the the organization that had you there that giving tangible gifts complicates relationships. So instead of giving them some nice present, what would you give them? Well, I know it sounds like a cliche, but I think giving our hearts, giving our presence, giving our attention uh, genuinely is... That's the biggest gift you can Yeah, that's give the them. biggest gift. And I will say that I've gone back several times individually and... Um, there is a place for tipping. And aside from the advice from Witness for Peace, mm-hmm. when I st- have stayed with Marlene and her family for long stays, I will give them a, a tip at the end that mm-hmm. seems not gargantuan to me, right. but it is it replaces her roof. It makes a difference. <laughs> yeah. It makes a difference. This yeah. is something I've struggled with is stewardship. 
Mm-hmm. You know, um, you're spending, I'm spending a lot of money to go down there and just to, to learn from being in a world that's struggling that way. And I really struggled with that. How can I be a good steward and have all of this touristic, almost voyeurism, if you want to put mm-hmm. it in a negative sense? And I really have come to the conclusion that the best thing I can do as a stewardship is not to feel guilty about spending a lot of money to fly somewhere where there's a lot of desperation, but to come home and have empathy for those people. And share your story. And share the story. Because some people don't have enough courage to do it or don't have the opportunity to do it. That's what you're doing with the book I'm holding right here, Bridging. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring the potential of thoughtful tourism in Nicaragua right now. And Penny Reeves, a teacher from Seattle who writes about her experience in Nicaragua in her book, Bridging. Languages, Culture, and My Life. Penny had a great experience with her first guide in Nicaragua, and he's joining us on the phone now. He's the director of the Aguali Biological Station in Margalpa, Ernesto Ocampo. Penny, can you uh, welcome Ernesto and start this conversation? I'd love that. I met Ernesto on my first trip to Nicaragua over 10 years ago. He was one of our tour guides, and I consider him a terrific entrepreneur. He really knows what's needed on the ground. And I've seen his um, spirit really take hold during this pandemic as he has created activities and what people need at the station. Nice. Ernesto, thank you for joining us. And thank you for having us. And thank you for that beautiful introduction. You must be a a wonderful tour guide, uh, considering the impact you had on Penny here. Uh, and that was many years ago, and uh, you've had a complicated political situation. Tell me, um, first of all, what is the situation for uh, tourism now? Because you welcome tourists at your biological reserve. Yeah, I, I do work. Uh, I lead a biological reserve um, called Aguali, and I also work for Matagalpa Tours, which is the company that hosted Penny and her colleagues as well when they came to Nicaragua. And the situation in Nicaragua is um, we are having some people traveling again after three years of being very, very quiet. We don't really have uh, that many travelers, but, yeah, we we are having some. Tell us about your biological reserve. You're working, I understand there's an aviary and beehives and organic production. Yes. uh, I will say that is a social company that is under the umbrella of Matagalpa Tours. With the political crisis in Nicaragua, it was uh, very complicated for for the company to hold the jobs of around 22 people who used to work with us. So there were only three people left eight months later after the crisis. And we decided to create a, um, to, to do more work, environmental work, and to ask people for help from different parts of the world in order to give opportunity not only to the people who were working here, but also to give the opportunity to other people, to young adults and families, complete families, to be part of the conservation program and to forget about a little bit of the violence that was being lived in Nicaragua. So we do this. Everything that we do in our farm or in our biological station is basically to teach young children and young adults. For example, we do organic farming, uh, we do organic honey production and a little bit of research in the forest as well. But our main focus is education and conservation. Now, Ernesto, my richest travel experiences have been on, on what I call reality tours or educational tours in Central America. I wonder, is Matagalpa tours in normal times, not now, but in, in normal times, 
Are you a kind of educational tourism, or, or is it a sightseeing kind of a tour? We, everything we do has to be educational. I mean, we like to connect people with people, people with the reality of Nicaragua, and people with nature as well. Because uh, when we try to do uh, conservation, we're not only talking about conservation of the environment. We are also part of the environment. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, it is very important that people understand what is going on in the country, what is going on with the environment and with its people, that people can have a real takeaway when, when they come to Nicaragua. Because beautiful pictures you can have, everywhere, but yeah. a real life-changing experience is what we want to develop or oh. to give to people. But at the same time, I will say that we have done that over 14 years, but now that we have the biological station, is even even more that we want to show people the reality of Nicaragua. So I think we are even more educational nowadays than we used to be three years ago. Wow. It sounds like you have a strong educational philosophy, and it also sounds like because of the political situation, very few people can actually come down and enjoy that like they could in normal times. Given the political reality now, what's the best way Americans can help Nicaragua, and what is a wrong way to help Nicaragua? Uh, do you have any advice for us? It's, it's a very interesting question, I would say. Um, I think the best way to help Nicaraguan is by traveling to Nicaragua and seeing the reality of Nicaragua. But at the same time, to do a little bit of research, if you want to support, for example, uh, local initiatives um, that are making a change in, in young people and young uh, or in children. And um, somehow Nicaragua right now is really, really safe to travel. I think by traveling to Nicaragua, you're also supporting the local families, for example, the homestays, hotels, restaurants, and that's a way of Nicaragua getting back on their feet as well. Yeah. So, because if you travel to Nicaragua right now and you go to uh, like the a five-star resort, you're not really making a change in people's lives. And also learning and connecting a little bit of what's going on in Nicaragua and, and not only what all the media is showing. You, the media can really give you the wrong impression uh, but if you travel, as Ernesto was saying, you can travel in a way that, that almost makes things worse by putting your money in the wrong place, or you can travel in a way that, that empowers local people and local businesses and hardworking entrepreneurial people that have a resilience. And one thing I, was, I really enjoyed reading Penny's book uh, is these little vivid images of resilience of the Nicaraguan people. Yeah. And that is resilience is such a perfect word to describe what I witnessed over and over and over again. One of my favorite stories is we have developed a fund to um, support microcredit and someone borrowed $50 in order to buy a freezer, a woman who was the butcher for her town. And can you imagine $50 to buy a freezer got her business on its feet. And then she made money and paid back the funds so that that money never goes away. And that's called micro-lending. Yeah. Ernesto, what's your experience with micro-lending? Because a lot of people in the, in the developed world like the idea of mini loans. It just takes a couple hundred bucks for a family to buy a couple of cows, and all of a sudden they've got a dairy business going, and then they pay back the loan, and it is recycled again and again and again. It sounds almost too good to be true. Do you like that concept of micro-lending between the developed world and the developing world? I Thank you for the question. And I, I think the, the key of everything 
is educating the people how to use the money. Mm-hmm. And that's actually what we do at the biological station. We try to educate the people so they can use their own resources or they can, if we give them a little bit of resources, that they can get more resources out of that. It's like if you give a child $100, what would the child do? I mean, exactly. so with, with no education. So it can happen with adults, too. We're on the phone with Ernesto Ocampo at the Aguali Biological Station in Matagalpa, Nicaragua. It's where he's training young people from his community to become eco-tour guides. Ernesto reports that tourism to Nicaragua is down about 98%, scared off by the political upheaval there in recent years and by the pandemic's border closures. Ernesto was the first guide to introduce our guest, Penny Reed, to Nicaragua. She writes about her transformative adventures in her memoir called Bridging and at alwaysbridging.com. I want to remind our listeners that uh, we'll have a link to Ernesto's biological station in the notes for this week's show. Ernesto, I could enjoy talking to you for such a long time, but we're out of time. But what I would like to hear from both you and from Penny to wrap things up, uh, one beautiful word in Spanish that you hear again and again when you travel in Latin America is esperanza. Ernesto, what does Esperanza mean to you when you think of the struggles of uh, your countrymen and women? For me, the word Esperanza or hope is not to give up because it's not only in Nicaragua, it's all over the world that you hear bad news every single day. And I think um, trying to give people opportunity, knowledge, techniques, skills for life is giving them hope as well and uh, given something to ourselves to work for, uh, to create more opportunities for our people, our uh, environment, and uh, our children, too. And, Penny, what what do you think of when you think of Esperanza in the context of Nicaragua? One of my favorite things about that word is that it comes from the verb esperar, which means to wait and to hope. It means both things. Ah. And I now am so encouraged hearing Ernesto say that I can travel there again. Because I have been hoping, I have been waiting for both of those things. In your book, Penny, you wrote that my Nicaraguan family's sacred and beautiful gifts of forgiveness, acceptance, and cooperation will forever compel me to choose the side of hope. Ernesto, my my heart is so with Nicaragua, and I'm I'm just so happy to be able to talk with you and and get that sense of hope that, that you share. So thank you for joining us, and best wishes. Thank you, thank you. And Penny Reed, thank you for sharing your journal, which so vividly and thoughtfully shares your experience in your book, Bridging, Languages, Culture, and My Life. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kazmara Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakely. And our theme music was written and performed by Jerry Frank. Special thanks to our colleagues at Iowa Public Radio in Iowa City for helping out today. You can find links to our guests, listen to a podcast version of the show, and search the archives at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll look for you again next week with another Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's top 100 masterpieces. Art for the traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.